McShane Bible Study, Day 73. If you're encountering these out of order, I went ahead and posted the one that we uh, recorded yesterday before the two priors, which I think is about six chapters in each of the four sections of the Bible. So I apologize for that confusion, but because it was kind of about this week that uh, Wes and I here are still in, (laughs) uh, I wanted to go ahead and post that right away. And we are starting today in Exodus 25. And so Moses is still on the mountain and God is speaking to him. And so he's speaking about some pretty important things here. And the first thing that stood out to me, he's, he's asking, he's telling Moses to get a contribution from the people and only to take contributions from those whose heart moves them. So for one, we just read recently when Paul was talking about um, getting a contribution from the saints for the saints to to bless other uh, Christians who needed the help. and uh, But he said he God wants a cheerful giver. Well, we see that here. That's what uh, God tells Moses, for those who are moved to give. There's there's a parallel here. If He's making the tabernacle, right, which represented the presence of God on earth, which is a forerunner to the temple, right? Uh-huh. We know that God is not confined to a temple these days, right? Who, who is his temple? Do you know? Us. Yeah. His people are his temple. And in other places, we're called like uh, stone, like uh, precious stones in his crown, like rubies or diamonds or emeralds, right? And so we see God's telling Moses to go gather from the people precious stones and gold, silver, bronze and goat skins and acacia wood and all these types of things to build this temple. Well, if he's asking for people who are willingly giving this contribution, that they're moved by the Lord to do it, what, what is he looking for in his temple today? People willingly giving their lives to him to be a part of his temple. You see that? And then the next section is the Ark of the Covenant. And a couple things stand out. For one, I've always wondered, and, and uh, I just had a chance to look it up. I've always wondered if the Hebrew word for Ark of the Covenant is the same word as Noah's Ark because they're translated the same in English. And, and there's incredible parallels of the two, so it would be really cool, I thought, if it was the same word. But it is not the same Hebrew word. I don't know why the English translators did that. Apparently, they're maybe somewhat similar. I didn't have enough time. Which I just looked it up quickly to see how they're similar. But apparently, there's some similarities there. But one thing I learned, and since I just learned it, I'll go ahead and say it. The Ark... Noah's Ark, the same word there, Ark, is the same word for the basket that Moses was put in when he was a baby. So when judgment was coming on all the people and Moses as a, as a son was, was restored and uh, protected from the judgment on all the rest of the babies, mm-hmm. that word Ark, the carrying presence and protection of God is the same word for the ark that Noah built when judgment came on all the world and this same ark protected him and his family. You see that? Uh Which of course is extremely similar to the fact that the ark of the covenant represents the presence of God amongst his people and it's a forerunner for the people of God carrying his presence and being his temple, Uh right? And, and the, the ark itself is kind of a picture of this. Like the ark is made of acacia wood. Acacia, you know, wood is a living thing, right? 
and it, it would eventually rot and kind of disintegrate. But it's encased in gold. Just as we are a living thing that's you know dying in our own flesh, in our own sin. But then the presence of the Lord comes and transforms us into something bigger and better. You see that? Mm-hmm. So if we found the Ark of the Covenant today, there wouldn't be any wood and it would just be like gold that's kind of hollow in place. I am no expert on that. I think the uh, process of disintegration probably stops when it it's encased in gold because the air is not getting to it. But I don't really know about that very much. There's a whole movie about the Ark of the Covenant, <laughs> Indiana Jones. Uh, someday you'll maybe find a watch. Um, okay, and then the next section is the the table for bread. So the the uh, bread of the presence of God. Mm-hmm. And if you remember, or maybe you don't know, uh, at one point David uh, and his men are hungry, and they come in and he gets bread of the presence. Well, you're seeing this is only for the priest. They're talking about stuff that's right in the heart of the tabernacle and later the temple. David was still tabernacle times. David should not have been eating that bread, right? You remember when they said to Jesus, um, why are your disciples eating grain on the Sabbath? And he says, don't you remember? David and his men ate the bread of the presence. Do you remember that story? Not really. Okay, well that happened. Well, here is the very first time we see it, where God is telling Moses what it is and how to make it. It's bread specifically set apart for the Lord, and it's only to be eaten by the priest, so Aaron's family. And then the last one it talks about is the golden lampstand. And that golden lampstand has seven, uh, what do you call those things? Yeah, seven branches. It has seven lamps on it, right? Do you remember, we used to do it all the time for Shabbat dinner, but Mommy stopped doing it where she liked the candle on the seven yeah. branches. Yeah, that's, that's what that is. The seven branches and seven lamps represent the seven spirits of God. So when we get to Isaiah 11, it names them. But things like, uh, you know, wisdom, knowledge, um, the, those are the seven spirits of God. Fear of the Lord is the first one. Which is which is mentioned last, but that's the beginning of wisdom, right? Wisdom is sort of the highest. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of that journey, right? And so the, this seven and when when you see in Revelation the seven spirits of God uh, there in the throne room, that's um, all right here in the tabernacle. This is a picture of that. That makes sense. Okay. Now we move to John four, which starts out with the woman at the well. And, and actually, what he teaches her is real similar to what we were just talking about. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So if you think about, yeah, the, remember the river or rivers mm-hmm. in um, the Garden of Eden? Yeah. And what we see in Ezekiel, the a picture of the end time temple of God, I think it's chapter 47, where the river is coming out. And at first it's, it's really, it's really like thin, it's like ankle deep, and then it gets knee deep and waist deep, and then you have to swim in it. It's just huge river of life coming out. And when we look at uh, Revelation, we see the same river of life. So it's a picture of God's life that Jesus is saying, 
that when we get filled with it, we we are we no longer dependent on ways of the world, but we live in in the life of God, and the life of God flows out of us to touch others. You see that? And then 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So that combines a couple things we were talking about earlier. For one, the people of God carrying the presence of God, not dependent on a temple or a city, but carrying the presence of God. And he says, who will these people be? The Father is seeking such people to worship him. So he's seeking people willing to be set apart from the world and its ways, from the culture that we're surrounded with, Mm -hmm. and instead receive the culture of the kingdom. And then the the official son that comes to him, um, I'm just... They make it very clear in the Gospels that seeing the miracles or the reality of God is dependent on faith. So the truth of God is true, whether we receive it or not, but we have to have faith to receive it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. That can be true of healing. And and this is not to put any restrictions on God because there's generally always exceptions to rules like that. Um, But in general, as a principle for life, if there's a truth of God, we have to have faith. We have to hear it, believe it, have faith that it's going to come true in our lives. Or it most likely won't. Faith is critical to our walk with the Lord. Does that make sense? Now we're starting Proverbs. So we're in Proverbs 1. And Solomon starts out. You know, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So we just talked about um, the seven spirits of God and mm-hmm. one of those being knowledge, right? And also fear of the Lord. And we see, uh, so the seven spirits of God are independent and independently important, mm-hmm. but they also build upon each other as seven aspects of the Holy Spirit. And so as they build up from the fear of the Lord, we get, you know, get to things like knowledge and wisdom. And and so he says, but the beginning, if you want to know things and he's he's teaching Proverbs, he's teaching knowledge and wisdom, right? He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning. So what is the fear of the Lord? It's being in awe of God and our place with God and realizing that that is everything in life, Mm -hmm. right? That nothing else should determine the way we think, the way we feel, or the or what we do, mm-hmm. right? Always seeking God in everything. Then mm-hmm. that's then we kind of grab hold a little bit of the fear of the Lord, right? But he says, fools despise wisdom and instruction. So he said, in order to receive wisdom, we're going to need to be instructed, discipled, trained mm-hmm. up, right? And... Uh, you know, 15, he says, my son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back. So he's talking about when your friends want to do things that are not the way that God would want you to do them. He says, fools kind of go along with their friends and then they get into big trouble and their life goes the wrong direction. 
He says, my son, don't walk in their way. Hold back your feet, for their feet run to evil. So he's saying, don't, don't make that mistake of going the way they go if they go the wrong way. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So if Austin or Noah decides, let's kill Arya, I shouldn't do it? <laughs> yeah, you should definitely put a stop to that. <laughs> and, and then 22, how long, those simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. You see, you can hear God's frustration in people, right? Your lives, there's no fruit in the way you're living your lives. How long are you going to keep going in this foolish ways? Turn back to me and I will pour my spirit upon you. Again, it relates to what we've been talking about, right? That's God's whole desire is that his presence is in us, that his wisdom is in us and with us. Right. And then he says, you know, and this is actually what really happens. There's an expression that there's no atheist in a foxhole. What's an atheist? An atheist is someone who doesn't believe in God. And the reason for that is when you're in a foxhole, you're very much aware that you might die any minute. Right. So people that all their lives never cared about God or maybe didn't believe God, they all of a sudden start praying. Because <laughs> all of a sudden they realize, wait a minute, I'm not so big and wise and strong and important as I thought I was. I could die any second. So all of a sudden they start turning to God. Well, what does he say? 27, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. Now, again, these are principles. It's, it, it doesn't mean it's always true. Some people come to the Lord in the foxhole, and when they get out of that situation, they realize, wow, the Lord saved me, and their life is turned around, and they always follow him. So... It, these things are principles. They're not necessarily, they're not always true. But what God is saying is, I'm looking for a people that live their whole lives with me. Not just look to get into heaven when they die, or not just call to me when they're in trouble, but people who walk with me day by day. Does that make sense? He says, these I will bless. So we're finishing up in 2 Corinthians 13. And he, he says... Verse four, for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. So he said, the power is not in the strength of our flesh, but in the power of his life within us, right? Mm -hmm. And then he says, it's very important. Verse five, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. So he says we should be examining ourselves daily to see, is the life of God in us? Are we living according to that life? Or are we just claiming him, but living unto our own flesh? So this should be a normal part of our walk, that we are examining ourselves for this. Make sense? Uh, Verse 10, for this reason I write these things while I am away from you, 
that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. They, they were struggling with false teachers. And he says, look, the Lord has granted me the authority over these matters. I don't want to come as a harsh ruler. I want to come as a friend, you know, and servant, one, to, one building you up. But I cannot allow the wrong building to be built on the foundation of Christ that I have worked on. You see that? He knows full well the authority God has given him. And he's willing to do what he has to. But he says, look, let's, <laughs> let's do this the right way in peace and joy. Make sense? Mm-hmm. Well, I think we've finished another book. And well, that's it for today. God bless you. God bless you.